Good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're just delighted uh, that you're here, and I'm delighted to get the privilege of worshiping with you, and I'm, I am grateful for Jacob for that last hymn. Um, those lyrics, uh, prone to leave, prone to wander. I don't know about you, but man, that's the story of my life, right? Love the Lord, and... Um, uh, and I want his love to, uh, to chain my heart uh, because otherwise, man, I'm just, call it spiritual attention deficit disorder or whatever. But that's, that's where I am. And, um, and in the midst of all of that, the steadfast love of the Lord never changes. His mercies never come to an end. And we're going to learn about that. Uh, my wandering heart is captured by God's steadfast mercy. And uh, especially, especially when my heart goes through those times of dark clouds. Um, I want to start with a quote this morning. I'll give you the quote, then I'll tell you who said the quote. Here's the quote. In my soul, I feel... Just that terrible pain of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not existing. In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not existing. That's a quote from the private letters of Teresa of Calcutta. She wrote that. About 10 years after her death, a collection of her letters were published, and readers who thought that they were going to be enjoying a collection of peaceful and devotional thoughts from a joyfully serene woman of the church were really surprised because these letters revealed the heart of a tortured soul. Elsewhere, Teresa wrote, If you only knew what darkness I am plunged into, I find no words to express the depths of the darkness. She wrote, The silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. She wrote, there is so much deep contradiction in my soul, such deep longing for God, so deep that it's painful, a suffering continual, and yet uh, not wanted by God, repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal, souls hold no attraction, heaven means nothing. To me, it looks like an empty place. The thought of it means nothing to me. I mean, this went on for decades. And when published, these letters just stunned some of the readers. You know, what? How can this be? And if someone, you know, as religious as her experienced something like this, oh my goodness. But the truth of the matter is that anyone who sets out to passionately pursue Christ, they will tell you that there are seasons, seasons, you know, where it feels like a cloud has enveloped you. And it, it feels like a cloud that will never lift. And when the clouds come over us, it's easy to assume, well, it's, you know, if I only had enough faith, if I uh, only had enough works, if I only had enough prayers, if I only had enough of the right prayers, well, then the clouds would clear out. And so I just need to do more and try harder. And we interpret the clouds and the darkness as a personal lack of faith in God. 
And, and we assume that if we were just more spiritual or, or more like Jesus, we, we wouldn't feel this way. We, we would be supremely happy in this life and emotionally ecstatic all hours of the day as we await the next. Here's the deal, church family. Your heart and my heart, our hearts for God, change throughout the day. Like the tide, high tide, low tide, like the moon, full moon, new moon. You know, the state of our heart waxes and wanes. Your heart for God is different now than it was at 7 a.m. And it's going to be different at 2 p.m. And it'll change again tonight. And it's just because... You know, we live in a sinful, broken, fallen world, and we're sinful, broken, and fallen. And God's people move in and out of sunshine and darkness and hope and hardship, and sometimes by the day, sometimes by the hour, and sometimes by the season. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. I mention this by way of preparation for our scripture reading this morning. Uh, we are in a series over the Old Testament book of Lamentations. And I'd ask you to turn there. You'll find Lamentations on page 685 of your church Bibles. And uh, before we just get into the text, let me just give you a mini-seminary course on Lamentations. Lamentations, first, why are we studying Lamentations? Lamentations answers the question, what happened to my country? And that's a very relevant question in our day today, is it not? What has happened to my country? And Lamentations is, is the response to that question. Lamentations is five chapters, a series of five poems uh, written in the 6th century B.C. after one of the greatest failures of Israel's history. The Babylonian Empire swallowed Israel and Jerusalem whole. Um, Jerusalem fell in 587 B.C., leveled. The temple destroyed. And, and um, the citizens were just deported. They just carted them off to Babylon. And the only people who were left behind were the ones who couldn't cause Babylon any trouble. And Lamentations mourns this disaster. What happened to my country? Uh, a lamentation is a threefold cry of protest, plea for mercy, and petition for help. That's what a lament is biblically. A protest. God, I don't like this. I don't like this. this. This punishment is too harsh. It's a plea. And yet, God, I'm sorry. I need mercy. I realize that I contributed to this. And then it's a petition. Remember me. Remember me, Lord. Help me. Cry protest, plea for mercy, petition for help. And each of these poems, except for chapter 5, these poems are structured according to an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet. So in our alphabet, 
uh, A, B, C, and so forth. And why an acrostic? Well, the poet is trying to make some sense of all of this chaos. The poet is attempting to find order in this chaotic, devastated life. And that the acrostic begins at the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and concludes at the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet communicates the totality of this suffering. This really hurts, the poet is saying. So in Lamentations chapter 1, there are 22 verses. Each verse has three lines. And at the beginning of each verse, starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1, first letter is the Hebrew letter, our letter A, their letter Aleph. 2, B, or Beth, and so on. 22 verses because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The theme is pain, pain. Over in Lamentations chapter 2, it's the same structure. Each verse has three lines, and the beginning of each verse starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? The theme of chapter 2 is wrath, God's judicial wrath, God's commitment to his character to punish evil, even when that evil shows up in the life of his people. Okay? When we move to Lamentations chapter 3, which is where we'll be today, 22 verses become 66 verses, and some of you are saying, Oh my goodness, this is going to be a long sermon. I won't torture you that way, okay? The reason why it's 66 verses is that it's one verse per line instead of one verse for every three lines, okay? So word count, it's the same length as chapters 1 and 2. And the first letter or the acrostic is in triplet form, so... Verse 1 and 2 and 3 each begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And then 4 and 5 and 6 move on to the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so on and so forth, okay? Because the acrostic is intensifying here, okay? There's a concentration here as if to say, this is really important, in fact, chapter 3 is the most important chapter in the entire collection of poems. So the pinnacle of Lamentations is right in the middle of the book. Because the theme is hope. Hope. Hope in God. Hope in the mercies of God. Uh, Hope in the mercies of God sandwiched in the hardships of life. Okay? So, so here's our big idea. Even in my darkest hardship, I will hope in the mercies of God. Even in my darkest hardship, I will hope in the mercies of God. Now, as I read chapter 3 for us, I want you to listen for how the poet cycles in and out of hardship and hope, 
hardship and hope. All right? Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys and the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever but though he cause grief he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth to deny a man justice in the presence of the most high to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven You've wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite. Until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. 
My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You've taken up my cause, O Lord. You've redeemed my life. You've seen the wrong done to me. O Lord, judge my cause. You've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens. Oh, Lord. This is God's word. This is just raw, isn't it? I mean, and could you sense the cycling from hardship to hope, hardship to hope? Even in my hardship, I will hope in God. And these raw emotions are from one who has lived through the invasion and fall of his homeland. And for some reason... He survived. And so the the poem vacillates. Hardship and hope. Hardship and hope. I mean, who here can't identify with that in their spiritual journey? Uh, In fact, this cycle happens twice in Lamentations chapter 3. In verses 1 to 21, that's the hardship section. And then in verses 22 to 33, that's the hope section. And then it goes back in verses 34 to 54 in the hardship section. And then concludes in verses 55 to 66 with the hope section. It's kind of like our life. Hardship, hope. Hardship, hope. But it concludes with hope. Hope has the last word in Lamentations chapter 3. Even in my darkest hardship, I will hope in the mercies of God. So let's just talk about each of those major sections, uh, hardship and hope, uh, as we proceed here in our message this morning. Starting with hardship, even in my darkest hardship. Verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. What man is that? Well, The word for man is the Hebrew word uh, which designates a man of military age. So this poem depicts a main character who is someone of military age, a defeated soldier, the voice of a defeated soldier who sits among the suffering. He's not in the grandstands observing. This defeated soldier has been on the field with the people. And he describes his suffering in verses 1 through 21 with two main images. He says, I'm in paralyzing darkness. That's the first image. And then the second image is, I feel like I'm hunted prey. 
Paralyzing darkness, hunted prey. Verses one through six. Feels like darkness. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. The darkness of a tomb. It's like I'm buried alive in a casket. And it's not just darkness, it's paralyzing darkness. Verses seven through nine. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. So it's not only dark, but it's dark and I can't move. And if you're claustrophobic, like I am, get me out of here. But can't. Can't. But then quickly the image changes, right? Because this is a poem. This is art. And verses 10 and following paint a picture of hunted game. I'm like someone hunted down. And God is the hunter. And sometimes... You know, the hunter is depicted as a predator animal. Sometimes the hunter is depicted as an archer. And talk about a slow, painful death. Verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Whoa. He's not talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about the Lord. The pronoun he, in verses 1 through 16, all refer to the Lord. The poet says, the Lord, you're doing this to me, you see. The hardship of feeling buried alive in paralyzing darkness. The hardship of feeling like I'm hunted prey. And these images recycle themselves in the back half of Lamentations 3. Look at verses 52 and 53. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. You see that? Hardship, paralyzing darkness, hunted prey. Question. What do you do with your hardship? What do you do with your pain? Well, these verses must have a point. How might they be meaningful to us today? What do you do with your hardship? Jim Martin is a pastor to pastors. And he's on the faculty of the Harding School of Theology. And he specifically asks that question, targeting men. So brothers... What do you do with your hardship? Here's what Jim Martin says. Many men simply leave. Oh, not physically, emotionally. They take it within and then they withdraw. In fact, to family members, it can feel like they've gone away. In fact, that's the phrase. They've just gone away. Where? Well, you name it. Some go away busyness. Some stay very busy, lost in work, lost in their busyness, lost in a life so hectic, so you don't have to think about the pain or the hardship. Others look for substitutes uh, like food or alcohol or drugs or porn. A man may lose himself even in his children so that he won't have to face the issues in his marriage. Or a man can volunteer for various activities at the church. 
I mean, who would argue with that? Some retreat to a room within. Uh, call it an inner man cave. Where we revisit moments of shame and humiliation and disappointments in our lives. And this is what uh, Martin says. One's mind can become a museum consisting of the relics of unresolved conflicts, unprocessed wounds, and unacknowledged pain. And the result is always anger and always depression. Always. Always. Is there help? Yes! Look at what the soldier did. Look at what the man's man did. The military guy in chapter 3. He acknowledged his hardship. He wrote about it. He got it out of his mind and onto paper. This warrior is a poet warrior. <laughs> we hear this at Celebrate Recovery. Revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. It's true. It starts by voicing our hardship to God in a spirit of humility, telling him what we are truly thinking and truly feeling but it doesn't just end with our vocalization and, and acknowledgement of our hardship to God. It needs to extend itself to another person before God and others. Another word for this is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Acknowledging the hardship. Acknowledging the hardship. But if I could speak for our brothers now, there's pushback that we give, that I give. And, and it's important for our sisters, especially those who are married and who may be sitting next to their husbands now going, thank you, Randy, for saying what you just said. Oh, Jesus be praised. Yeah, I get that. Right, all right. But there's pushback that, that our sisters need to hear. And here's the pushback. Um, I'll, let, um, I'll let research sociologist Brene Brown speak. She once asked the question, why is it so hard for guys to acknowledge their hardship? Why is it so hard for them to acknowledge their pain? This is what she says. Once after a lecture on shame, a man approached me to say, my wife and daughters, they'd rather see me die on top of my white horse than watch me fall off. You say you want us to be vulnerable and real, but come on, you can't stand it. It scares you. It makes you sick to see us like that. So what I've learned is to just give my wife enough to believe that I'm being open because if I were totally truthful about how afraid and out of control I feel, she would judge me. And what we all need to hear, men, women, boys, girls, what we all need to hear in our vulnerable moments where we say what we truly think and what we truly feel to God and one another, we, we need to hear these words. I hear you. I see you. I see all of you. I love you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We need verse 57. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. It's the only time the Lord is quoted in Lamentations. 
The only words attributed to the Lord in Lamentations, do not fear. And see, the irony is, is that when we acknowledge the hardship, when we open our hearts to say what's there, we also become open to hear truth. We also find ourselves open to say things like, well, let us test and examine our ways. Or why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? See, See, by acknowledging my hopelessness, then I am gifted with hope. The possibility of a better day. The possibility of forgiveness. The possibility, the promise of restoration. And so, even in my darkest hardship, I will hope in the mercies of God. Verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Wait, I thought he didn't have hope. Verse 18 says, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Well, he didn't, but when he acknowledged it, he was gifted it. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And then the poet just breaks out in worship right there, addressing the Lord. Great is your faithfulness. So Israel is where Israel is because of Israel. Because of Israel's idolatry, immorality, oppression, to the point where God, out of his fierce commitment to his character and to his justice, punishes his beloved severely because God is committed to that. He's committed to punishing evil even when evil shows up in his people. But he starts over with those who repent, and it will take time, but he will repair the relationship. And that's the hope, the hope of new daily morning mercies. His mercies are new every morning. Verse 23. I like what Paul David Tripp writes. Post those words on the mirror that you look into each morning. His mercies are new every morning. Put them on the door of your refrigerator. Tape them to the dashboard of your car. Glue them on the inside of your glasses. Set them where you will see them every day. Mercy. His mercies are new every morning because mercy is the theme of God's story. Mercy is the thread that runs through all Scripture. Mercy is what your desperate heart needs. Mercy is the healer your relationships need. Mercy is what gives you comfort in weakness and hope in times of trial. Mercy can do what the law is powerless to do. Mercy not only meets you in your struggle, but mercy guarantees that someday your struggle will end. Mercy is what this sin-broken world groans for. Mercy triumphs where justice can't. If God's justice was his last words, who would run to him? But no, it's his mercy that woos us to him. 
And, and without mercy, without God's mercy, human relationships are reduced to human demands, human performance, human failure, human judgment, and human punishment. Without mercy, there's no hope, and without mercy, there's no power to change. So mercy is why we gather here, church. Mercy is why we sing. Mercy allows me to be your pastor. Mercy is how we all receive forgiveness. And mercy is how we forgive others because God always gives me more mercy than I can personally consume so that I'll share it with others who need it as well. Mercy has a first name, you know. That's right. Jesus, the mercy giver. And this morning when you woke up and went to your dining room table, there was a fresh plate of fresh baked, hot out of the oven mercy for you from heaven made by Jesus himself. God never gives you day-old mercy. He doesn't. It's never stale. It's never tired. It's never worn out. You never get yesterday's mercy today. You get today's mercy today. And it's personalized for you, in your situation, in your day, and individualized for your hardships and hurts. We all get the same mercy, but it doesn't come to all of us the same size and shape because God knows who you are and where you are and what you're facing. And in his divine wisdom, he meets you with just the right mercies for the moment. Hallelujah. No wonder. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion. That word means inheritance. The Lord, I don't need the land as my inheritance. I don't need the temple as my inheritance. I just need the Lord. And when I, when I have the Lord, I'm satisfied. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Lamentations 3, cycles from hardship to hope, but it ends with hope. This, this poet warrior cycles from personal hardship to personal hope. He acknowledges his hardship. We saw that first. He then trusts and plants his life in the ground of hope from which he grows and then is able to teach others about hardship. So let us examine our ways and return to the Lord and then he pleads in hope for God's full deliverance against the enemies, the Babylonians, because they are not without fault. <laughs> Their days are numbered as well. And the poet pleads to God in hope. In the midst of my darkest hardship, I will hope in the mercies of God. Centuries later, another warrior would appear, a warrior king, of whom it was said in John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And his light shined brightest in the darkness of the cross where Jesus was overwhelmed in a cloud of judgment for my sins, where he was paralyzed and made immobile for my transgressions. 
for us. God's mercy to us comes through his justice on the cross. Or as the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins. That's the hardship. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's the hope. Being put to death in the flesh, that's the hardship. He was made alive in the spirit. That's the hope. Church family, listen. This is Christianity. The cross always comes before the empty tomb. Always. Hardship always comes before hope. And because of Christ's hardship, we have hope. We have hope. Amen? Yeah. Well, that's Lamentations 3. And you know, um, listen, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. And here's what I know about Christianity. Christianity isn't for everyone. A, a pastor named Chad Bird put it this way. If you've made such huge strides in holiness that you deem grace a crutch for those still handicapped by sin, if you detect the faint applause of angels clapping their wings at your obedience, if you've led such an exemplary life that you've landed a spot on heaven's honor roll, then Christianity is not for you. If you've clawed your way rung by rung up the ladder of life, and if you now look down on the masses of good-for-nothings who'll never be your peers, then Christianity is not for you. If you've walled yourself in so you don't have to rub shoulders with people, shoulder to cry on, a listening ear, a whispered prayer, then Christianity is not for you. If you smile at the man in the mirror because by not smoking and drinking and womanizing and gambling and swearing, you've built up a moral bank account so fat with cash you can open a pawn shop of piety and lend out your righteousness to others, then Christianity is not for you. But if you realize that your moral bank account is insolvent and that you have no righteous riches to fill the wallets of others, much less God, then let me tell you about the God who, though he was rich for your sake, became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. If your life is one self-inflicted mess after another, if your closets are so stuffed with skeletons that you have to rent a stack of those pods, if you've served time for your crimes... If you're afraid the ceiling will collapse if you darken the doors of a church, then let me tell you about a Savior who went out of his way to be a friend of sinners. If you're lost and hurt and guilty and trapped and can't seem to do a thing about it, you keep thinking there must be something else to life. If you're struggling for sexual purity, hetero or homo, if you're divorced or married, addicted or clean, young or old, then Christianity is for you. Because Christianity is spelled J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. He is the God of failures who bled between lawbreakers. Jesus smiled at death and said, take me in order that he might take you into his arms and make you alive and love you back into hope again. Jesus calls poor, miserable sinners, not those who sport homemade halos. 
And right now, he's saying, come to me. Do not fear. That's his voice in Lamentations 3.57. Do not fear. I died for you even before you were born. I rose for you even before you knew you were dead and needed my life. I am your God, all yours, and by grace through faith, you are my child. You are all mine, and that's Christianity. It's all gift. And that gift is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is our hope in life's darkest hardship. Amen.